Last week that the book of James, I believe, is packed with verse after verse of some of the most practical, um, powerful um, practices, I had to look in front of the P, uh, that, Christians, <laughs> uh, that Christians should do but don't. If you want to read a book that is full of stuff we should do that we ignore, I invite you to read the book of James, five chapters. It's, um, it's wisdom that we often fail to apply to our lives or to live out, and therefore we pay the price. Let's just jump into part two, and we'll see what, what James has for us. James chapter two, verse one through nine Reading from the message, Pastor, why do you like the message? I like the message because it doesn't slap box. This is all out UFC. I like it because it doesn't go around. It's not trying to impress you with poetry. Just the message just hits home. James 2, verse 1 through 9. My dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious Christian-originated faith, or Christ-originated faith. If a man enters your church wearing an expensive suit, and a street person wearing rags comes in right after him, and you say to the man in the suit, sit here, sir, this is the best seat in the house, and either ignore the street person or say, better sit here in the back row. Haven't you segregated God's children and proved that you are judges who can't be trusted? Listen, dear friends, isn't it clear by now that God operates quite differently? He chooses the world's down and outs as the kingdom's first citizens with full rights and privileges. This kingdom is promised to anyone who loves God. And here you are abusing these same citizens. Isn't it the high and mighty who exploit you, who use the courts to rob you blind? Aren't they the ones who scorn the new name Christian used in your baptisms? You do well when you complete the royal rule of the scriptures. Love others as you love yourself. It's okay, sis. She's, she's awesome. That's going to be my number one fan today. Don't hush. Or let her go. But if you play up to these so-called important people, you go against the rule and stand convicted by it. So, According to James, if we're going to live this life inside out, which is we're going to actually be who we're supposed to be inside and not just um, some shell, some camouflage fraud, but if we're going to live this life inside out, according to James, there can be no class system for people in the church. There is no room for judging people according to skin color, social status, or economic condition. There's no room for prejudice in form, shape, or color. The church must be an equal opportunity environment. If that is true, why do we continue to segregate and isolate? This isn't a new thing. From the very beginning of the existence of the church, there's been this tendency to want to draw lines of separation. Jews over here, Gentiles over there, rich over here, poor over there. They started it and basically we perfected it. Now, there are white churches, black churches, Hispanic churches, seeker churches, and even deep word churches. It, it, James says that that's sin. And the moment that we become lawbreakers, it isn't just a preference. It is that we have allowed our comfort zone to trump God's word. Now, I understand language barrier. 
but not all of those different churches because we have, you know, you have, you have white churches, black churches, Spanish churches. Uh, There's some, they all speak the same languages, but we begin to segregate it and, and we begin to move over here, move over there. And that's basically saying that we allowed our comfort to actually trump God's word. Have we forgotten one of the most profound and closest truths to God's heart that we learned in children's church? Do you remember a little song? Red, yellow, black, and white. They're all precious. What does it say? In the sight, Jesus loves the little children of the world. We sung that as kids, or if you didn't, your kids have, have learned it in Sunday school. And we all stand equal in the eyes of God. So we got to get our nose down and accept people from all walks of life. Sit next to people who aren't like you. Speak to folks who aren't like you. Quit settling in the comfortable cliques. See, in his autobiography, uh, Gandhi wrote that during his student days, he read the gospel seriously and even considered converting to Christianity because he believed in the teachings of Jesus that he could find a solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India. So one Sunday, he decided to attend church services at a nearby church and talk to the minister about becoming a Christian. And when he entered the sanctuary, however, the usher refused to give him a seat and suggested he go worship with his own people. And Gandhi left the church and never returned. He basically said, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. I'm thankful, and I declare that here in C3 will continue to be the church that, every, that loves everyone at every level. God forbid that we stop somebody at the door that they want to be a Christian because they don't look like us, talk like us, dress like us, smell like us, they don't have habits like us. What are we actually doing? There is no room, there is no room in God's church for a class system of people. That's ridiculous. James 2, 10 and 11. You can't pick and choose in these things specializing in keeping one or two things in God's law and ignoring others. The same God who said don't commit adultery also said don't commit murder. If you don't commit adultery but go ahead and commit murder, do you think your non-adultery will cancel out your murder? No, you're a murderer, period. The second thing we can learn from James, we're going to learn to live inside out, is that there can be no class system for our sin or for sin in our lives. See, we've created a class system for sins as well. We try to justify our sin by excusing ourselves because we haven't committed sin in other areas. We keep score, basically. I did this but didn't do that because that, oh, that'd be a whole lot worse. But sin is sin, and sin is the same. Now, we don't understand this, and let's just be honest in church for once. We really don't agree with it. If I say sin is sin, big or small, it's all sin. like, wait a minute. So let me, let me put this in context. Sin has various levels of impact. Some sins are more devastating in their natural repercussions. Usually murder has a, a more devastating natural impact than, say, lying. At least that's how we see it because we see in the natural. I'm not talking about the natural. I'm not talking that if you tell me a lie and say, hey, did you get up early this morning? You said, yep, and you got up 15 minutes before church or someone to commit murder. I'm not, it, it's easy for us to say what a person to commit murder, obviously, but that's the natural. But what James reminds us is that in the supernatural realm, there is just destruction. There is no level of sin. Murder and lying have the same exact supernatural result separation from God. See, that's where we mess up is, is, is how many people did not sin today? Please come and grab the microphone. You can preach. We are going to fight this thing. 
but we feel comfortable because we didn't commit murder, we didn't rob a bank, and you didn't cheat on your spouse. Congratulations. I'll be handing out sticky stars later at the church. But we think because we don't do that, because you didn't go to penitentiary for 25 to life, that it doesn't matter. No, according to James, all sin has the exact same impact and effect, separation from God. And we look at it that way. It's like, wow, why do we need to live a repentant life? It's because when you repent of your sins, you are taking away that separation. When you think it's okay and justify it, you now made a class system for your sin, and you're saying, God, I choose to be separate from you, but at least I wasn't as bad as the other person. See, God, in God's eyes, sin is sin. So James is trying to get us to, to stop downplaying our own sin. Let's put it this way. If you've ever uttered the words, it doesn't hurt, impact, or affect anybody but me, you've just set up a class system for sin. We must understand that it is an all or nothing deal. We either keep all the law or we have kept none of the law. This is hard for us to understand. Just because you're in the church, just because you've been baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Spirit, that's great. But as soon as you got out of the water, it didn't mean you'll never sin again. But we become so desensitized that as long as we are not, you know, carjacking somebody at the 7-Eleven, we think we're all right. But we'll live, we'll live all kind of craziness with our eyes, what we watch, what we hear, what we see, what we do. But here, let me tell you, please don't set up a class system for sin because it's only going to hurt yourself. James chapter 2, 12 and 13. Talk and act like a person expecting to be judged by the rule that sets us free. For if you refuse to act kindly, you can hardly expect to be treated kindly. Kind mercy wins over harsh judgment every time. This is my favorite of this chapter, what we're going to learn right here. This is my favorite. According to James, we're going to live the life inside out. We should judge. We should judge, but differently. There is a lie that has invaded our lives. We have listened to the cry for tolerance so much that we believe the devil's lie that we should not judge. You hear people say, don't judge me because the Bible says, judge not lest thou be judged. That's the only thing they can quote from the Bible. Oh, and Jesus turned water to wine. Those are the only two things they're quoting. He's like, don't judge me. Only God can judge me. Well, I hear you, Tupac, but hold up a little bit, buddy. Uh, let's get something straight. You haven't read the Bible if you say that. Only God can judge me. Don't judge me. Because the Bible specifically teaches. The Bible even has a book. The title of the book is called Judges. A whole book dedicated to people who acted as judges. And James reiterates it here that you are to judge, to discern, to weigh in the balance, to examine fruit. So we cannot become tolerant of sin. However, we are to judge with a tendency towards mercy. You are to judge. Listen to me, I'm going to say it slow. You are supposed to judge, but differently. Why? Because the same measure of mercy you give will be the same measure, the same dose, the same level of mercy you'll receive. Or said another way, the lack of mercy you give will come back to bite you in the end when you're the one standing in judgment. So we must also be intolerant of merciless judgment. See, here, here. The, there, there's some professors that are writing that they cannot no longer have debates in class. 
in university and high school. There could no longer, you remember when we were in school and the professor would actually throw stuff out just to get something going? In a, in a conference of professors, college professors, they say that this whole thing, stop judging me, don't judge, has killed uh, discourse in the classroom. Because as soon as somebody stands up and says, I don't agree with that, their next thing is don't judge me. And so now people are so scared of being judgmental. Let me clear it up for you. You're supposed to judge, but differently. So here's the thing is that I'm supposed to judge differently, but I'm not supposed to agree with every crazy thing that comes out of somebody's mouth. I'm not supposed to agree with and put my stamp of approval on sin, on somebody's craziness, just because they think I might be judging them. I'm supposed to judge. I'm supposed to be a fruit inspector. When you pick up bananas, do y'all go for like the, like the whole, like the ones like that's been beat black and blue? Do y'all get the green ones, that little bit of green, a little bit of yellow? Y'all spend more time picking bananas than you do. <laughs> Obey in the second chapter of James. Y'all will squish a tomato and look at it and smell fruit and knock on it and thump it or whatever y'all do and just do a half little dance to see if it's ripe. You have no problem inspecting fruit that way, but you are scared to death. To judge, like the Bible says, we're supposed to judge, but differently. See, I want to make a statement to you here and try to drive it home. Learn to give people the benefit of the doubt. The church is too full of superstition and thinking the worst about people. We expect people to hurt us. We expect people to be terrible. We expect people to be vile sinners. We expect people to stab us in the back. We expect that people are talking bad about us. Let's become a people of mercy and give people the benefit of the doubt. But still, you are still supposed to judge, and we're still supposed to call out what's right and what's wrong. I don't care what the world is saying. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. How can I not judge you? You're a single parent that doesn't come home at night. You're addicted to crack cocaine, and you drink 24 beers a day. I'm not judging you, Bubba. That is truth. That's wrong, and you got kids at home. That's not judging you. That's just calling out the obvious. But we can judge with mercy and say there must be a reason why you got to that point. And you know what? I know someone can get you out of that, and his name is Jesus. But you can't say, oh, it's okay. I can't say nothing because I'm going to be judging. No, no, no. Every person I have ever met, let me bring it back this way. The reason I want you to give people the benefit of doubt is that every person I've ever met that expected to be hurt, lied to, mistreated, uh, abused, uh, misused, was. They go looking for it and project their expectations on every situation. Mercy should rule the day. Judge, but judge through the lens of mercy. I said on the call Wednesday, I probably said it Sunday, is that I have pinpointed my attitude. It's not grumpy, although it's easy to say I'm grumpy all the time. It's I have expectations of people, especially in leadership. I have expectations of people hold certain titles. I don't have expectations of everybody, but when, a, when somebody that have expectations that there, there should be a standard, let, let's just say, um, let's just say a leader of a, of a department in, in where you work. If they have 25, 50, 100 people under their leadership, you expect a certain kind of uh, whatever, uh, demeanor, discipline, whatever it is from there. And when they do things over and over and over and over that go contrary to that expectation, you begin to be disappointed in that person. And so here, this is what I'm talking about, is, is that sometimes I judge through the lens of my expectation, and that's not right. 
I'm not saying I can stop it. I'm just saying it's not right. But we need to judge through the lens of mercy. See, we have been forgiven so much that it should cause us to quit longing for revenge. True forgiveness is revealed when you no longer want revenge. See, unchurched people should feel comfortable here in this building. They should know that they're loved. They should not feel comfortable here in their sin. We judge, but we judge with mercy. Look in the Bible. Sinners were comfortable around Jesus. They just weren't comfortable with their sin. Jesus had no problem being in the presence of people that actually needed him, that weren't like him, that were doing everything contrary to what he was teaching and he came to earth for. They were comfortable in his presence and wanted to be around him. But when they got into his presence, they wanted to change their life. We should be that. We should be people that, that unchurched, non-church people, non-Christians come in this place and we just love being around you guys. Why? Because we act and we judge through the lens of mercy. We give people the benefit of the doubt. They should love to be with us just like they love to be with Jesus. But when they get around us, see, when they leave, they should say, you know what? I want to cut off the bad things I'm doing, but not the friendship I have with those people. It should be that. Are y'all with me? Okay. So I want you to be able to judge effectively. I want you to see sin for what it is, but at the same time, I want unchurched folks to feel home around you, which is difficult. James 2, 14 through 26. Oh, Lord, that's a lot of reading. That's a lot of listening. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? I'm going to convince you all to get a message, or at least read it. Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come up on an old friend dressed in rags and half starved and say, good morning, friend, be clothed in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and walk out with providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup? Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God act is outrageous nonsense? I can hear, I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, sounds good. You take care of the faith department, I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith fit together hand in glove. Do I hear you professing to believe in, in, the, in the one and only God, but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that, but what does that, get, what does that do to them? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hands? Wasn't our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar? Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith expresses itself in works? That the works are works of faith. The full meaning of believe in the scripture since Abraham believed God and was set right with God includes his action. It's that mesh of believing and acting that got Abraham named God's friend. It's very hard to not stop and speak on everyone. Can you see where I'm trying to read 10 verses and put them down into one saying? I want you to be able to three by five card your chapters. But as soon as I read that as a preacher, it's like, how do you go past verse 23? Is it not evident that a person is made right with God, not by bearing fruit, but by faith, fruitful in works. The same with Rahab, the Jericho harlot. Wasn't her action in hiding God's spies and helping them escape 
that seamless unity of believing and doing what counted with God? The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works, and you get the same thing, a corpse. According to James, if we're going to live life inside out, faith and works are married and can never be divorced. We don't work to be saved. Let me just get that straight. We do not work to be saved. We are saved by grace through faith, obedience to the gospel. But because we are saved, we work. Some of us reveal the importance and status of our faith by our lack of works. Some of us, of us um, show the importance and status of our faith by, by, our faith by excess works. Why did you say it that way? Some people have lack of work. They don't do anything. And some people try to do everything. There is a plague that has trapped many of us. It's called the plague of performance. We perform hoping to earn God's love, to be accepted by him, to earn our salvation. But let me tell you, nothing you can do right now can make God love you any more or less than he already does. You have to understand that. You can't twist God's arm. You can't fast enough. Here, here, let me just tell you, this is always funny. This will always mess all my, my Pentecostal friends up. You cannot fast enough to make God give you the gifts of the Spirit. You got people say, I'm going to go on a 14-day fast. I'm going to eat one meal. I'm going to fast on the 30 days. So God gives me all nine gifts of the Spirit. Please. Do it all you want to. You may just be real hungry and skinny. Um, you're not going to twist God's arm and say, give me, give me, give me. Um, now, is fasting and prayer important? Absolutely. But too many of us think that we got to earn God's favor. And if we do enough stuff, then maybe he'll trust us one day, someday with the cool stuff. And a lot of that has to do with, with the, that plague of performance. Well, maybe God doesn't use it because I don't, I don't pray enough. Well, how much do you pray right now? Seven hours a day? That's probably not it. Uh, well, maybe if I fast every day that ends in Y, I'll be, how about just trying to live out this thing called the Christian life? But we are plagued on both ends. I do nothing because God loves me. And they just do a whole bunch of craziness. You couldn't tell that they were a Christian unless they told you. You wouldn't know. Then you got other people that spend their entire life trying to, uh, church is nothing but a works factory for them. Uh, you know, I, I read this much Bible and pray this much a day. And they're like, they're like it's, it's like they're trying to count their macros. Uh, I, did, I did 100 um, grams of praying and I did 50 grams of fasting. I mean, you, this is not me fit your macros. And they just do all this stuff and all this stuff. They're not in love with God. They're in love with the works they do for him because maybe they hope that he'll love them more. And in all they do, they don't even include him at all. Pastor, that doesn't happen. Oh, yes, it does. See, we work because we love him and because he loves us, but not to earn it. So, but the question is, how do your works reflect on your faith? What are you doing that reveals that you have faith in Christ and that you are living for him? How does your faith show up in your works? Are you working with the right attitude? Are you trying something so big that unless God intervenes, it's going to fail? And then what are you created for? See, there's, there's something, something said about this something for nothing mentality. It's invaded the hearts and minds of Christians until we've created a new oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is, right? Like um, jumbo shrimp, oxymoron. Two words that shouldn't fit together, complete opposites. The new oxymoron that's going around now is lazy Christian. 
should never go together. Those words should never go together or even utter in the same sentence. However, we allow consumerism and laziness to invade the church until we actually attend church just to sit back and soak it up, drain energy, drain resources, demand services, demand programs that give nothing back, no tithe, no help, and the church doesn't come through. We'll shop for another one until we find one that does. Wow. Oxymoron. Lazy Christian. Now, I'm going to say this word, and y'all are going to be like, Pastor, that's too harsh, and maybe you're right, but, but this oxymoron we have going on, lazy Christian, is, is a parasite. It lives off the host, but never gives back anything. James says that we should be the hardest working folks in our job, in our community, and in the church. Our faith should drive, our faith should drive us to do something about poverty, about the hungry, and about the needy. But see, talk is so, so cheap. We're a lot better at verbalizing our faith than practicing it. Faith in action is real faith. And I'll just, I'll just throw everybody, in, I'll throw all the pastors in there. Pastors just as much to blame for this. Hey, just come to church. Hey, just be at church. Be at church on Sunday. Perfect attendance. That's great. But, but there's more than that, just making sure you don't miss a Sunday. What are you doing with this thing called faith? Are you just sitting and listening and soaking and just, oh, that was good. I wonder what he's going to say next week. This whole faith and works, it can't be separated. I love what James said. If you, if you cut a faith and works apart, you get a corpse. It has to be together. Faith and works are married and they can never be divorced. So he tells us, James says, even the demons have faith. Now think about it for a minute. If all we have is faith in God, if all we have is faith in God, we are on the same footing as demons. What is it? Thou believest there's one God, thou doest well. The demons also believe and tremble. Sounds cute in King James. I like the message better. Because it's basically saying that the demons also believe, and where does that get them? Demons believe in God. They just don't exercise their faith in working for him. It's our works that we do for him that reveals our faith. See, the root of your salvation is faith. The fruit of your salvation should be works. Let me see have you ever heard of George Blondin? George Blondin was, he was a famous tightrope walker. And he, for a publicity study, he decided he'd walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And so one day, they stretched the tightrope from one side of Niagara Falls to the other. If you don't think that's uh, far, uh, go to Google. And he got up there, and there were crowds lighting both the Canadian and American side. Thousands of people showed up to see this unbelievable feat. And Blondin walked up to the edge of the tightrope put one foot on the tightrope and another foot out and began to walk across inch by inch, step by step. He got out in the middle and everybody knew that if he'd make one mistake in his balance, he'd fall off the rope into the falls and obviously he'd be killed. Blondin got to the other side and the crowd went wild, cheering and shouting. Blondin said, I'm going to do it again. He got to the other side and the crowds went crazy. Yeah. Blondin said, I want to do this again, but this time I'm going to push a wheelbarrow full of dirt. And he pushes the wheelbarrow across. He got to the other side. He did this nine or ten times. And on the tenth time, he pushed the wheelbarrow right in front of a tourist who said, I guess out of emotion, I believe you could do that all day. And Blonde had dumped out the dirt and said, really? Get in. Some of us have talked about our faith for so long, we've forgotten how to act on it. Man, I wish. I wish I could have seen the face of that person. I said, no, just because I believe doesn't mean I want to get involved. 
nothing's really changed. Other people walked across the falls. Other people have done it. They've been on bicycles. They've had people on piggyback. They've done all kinds of stuff. But I wish I could have seen that face of that wheelbarrow of dirt just being emptied. Get in. I think that's where the church is right now. We come and we sing, most of us on tune, <laughs> and we clap, most of us on beat, and we know how to say it. Praise God. Bless him. We raise our hands. We even run in the right direction so we don't have accidents. We all run in the same direction. We are really good about verbalizing our faith, but I wonder how many of us are going to get in the spiritual wheelbarrow. God, I believe you can do it. Good. Do something. I'm glad you're here. Please don't misunderstand. I'm glad you're here physically. I'm glad for those that are watching on Facebook, those who are watching on YouTube, those that are listening on SoundCloud or whatever, nine million other things that, that the guys decided to put us on. But that's not enough. He didn't save us to be professional sermon critiquers. He didn't save us so we could all clap and dance and run with efficiency. He saved us so we could actually do something with this salvation. We are supposed to be representatives of the kingdom. We cannot be representatives of the kingdom if we hide away from the very people we're supposed to be reaching. So my question, as you stand with me, is, how many people want to put some work with their faith? I know, I know it's very hard with a church this size because everybody thinks you're talking about them, and I'm not. But there are some people that will never preach, that will never play, they'll never teach a Bible study, they'll never be asked to sing a special, and they are so essential to the church. This church does it run well because of me? I just get the little microphone and I get to stand up in front of everybody. All the work that goes in so I can have 35 minutes of your time under some very hot lights. All this stuff does not happen. The editing of the video, the lights, the chairs, the, 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 someone has to go buy all this stuff. Someone has to set it all up. Someone has to tear it all down. Someone has to pay the bills and turn on the lights and air conditioner and fix this and fix that. We were reading yesterday. Did you know that there is, is it third John is a letter written to a guy thanking him for hospitality. Ian, I read it last night. Reading the message, I want to thank you for the hospitality. It came back to my ears that people, the traveling Christians, can find hospitality in your house, and I just want to take some time to thank you. That's in your Bible. That made the canon. That made the 66 books of the Bible. Is hey, do you have a few minutes so I can thank you for your hospitality? We have this works all wrong. It's not about being a missionary to some country you can't spell, you never heard of. It's just about doing something. Or the kingdom. If you understand that, then there's work everywhere. If you understand that, it's, it's powerful. See, our faith is not determined by what we do. It's demonstrated by what we do. I'm not calling your faith in the question. You're here. 
You lost an hour of sleep today and you're still here? Praise God. I'm not calling into question your faith. I'm just saying your faith is demonstrated by what you do. So I don't know about you. I'm going to give that tightrope a go. I want to do something that I'm comfortable cheering God on about. But I want to do something that might scare me a little bit and maybe just go with them. What do you say? This was a, this was a long chapter, but I, I, I'm not going to keep preaching 45 and 50 minutes. That's not my style. My style is about 30, 35. But I want you to know that there's no room for a class system of people in the church. There's no room for a class system of sin in our lives. We're supposed to judge, but differently. And this last one, this last one is a little bit different. Our faith and works are married, can never be divorced. I don't want you to be plagued by this plague of performance, but I do want you to question yourself. Am I demonstrating my faith by what I do? It may be something so small. I'm not rambling. I'm actually, there's a point to this. I don't know if you notice it on Wednesday, but I notice people who write down prayer requests. I saw Candace writing. She was standing behind her husband and Candace, Candace is writing down prayer requests. You don't write down prayer requests if you're never going to pray over them. That's works. She's going to take that list that she wrote down. That's works. And she's going to pray. That's faith and works. It could be that small. And God will applaud you. What he doesn't want is he doesn't want a church full of spectators. Faith and works. I'm saying this because people get so frustrated. Pastor, I don't know what to do. I don't know either. Just do something. Go, go read Third John when you go home. Read it. It's one chapter, a thank you letter for hospitality. I've, I've read it in many versions, but the message makes it like, really? It was so important to the apostle. He says, I got so much stuff to tell you, but I don't want to do it in pen and paper. I want to tell you face to face. If all the things you could have wrote down, I don't know what else you're going to tell me when you get here, but you just wanted to thank me because I was hospitable? Yeah. That's Christianity. We're making this so hard, so much harder than it is. God already loves you, always going to love you, can't love you anymore. You can't do anything to make him love you anymore. He just wants you to act out your faith through works. What do you say? On this Sunday where we're all a little sleep deprived, can we find a few minutes? Maybe talk to God as Todd sings.